everybody pre-accident podcast how are you today i hope you're doing well are you i mean this is kind of a check-in to make sure you're doing okay i am great i think because it feels like spring is here and that's always a relief to me and i can hang outside and watch tv and do stuff outdoors and not be trapped inside although i'm finding i'm trapped inside a lot i don't want to sound complaining i'm not complaining but the new way we do work I spend an awful lot of time sitting at my desktop computer, which I guess is fine. Staring at a green light, which I guess is fine. Um, and d- talking to people, I mean, doing stuff. And it's not outside enough for me. But I guess I wouldn't be outside under the old way we did work either because, you know, mostly you're inside. But it feels like I'm so close to being outside and I could just sneak away. And I'm not sure people would miss me. I, <laughs> I don't know if you think about that when you're on a Zoom meeting, but if I just went away, would it matter? Would the earth stop? I think the answer is a big fat no. N-O, no. So it's pretty crazy. Uh, Today's podcast is interesting. And one that, I mean, I'm not going to talk much about what we talk about because we talk about it, but that was an interesting sentence. But it's one I would have never in a billion years thought to do. Seriously, in a billion years, if you gave me a billion years, wouldn't have thought of this topic. And I still wouldn't have thought of this topic, except our buddy Martha Acosta came over and said, I have an assignment and we have to do this. And I promised I'd get it done today. And so then she forced me into using all sorts of uh, aggressive ninja skills into actually having this conversation. And I'm pretty glad we did. Because I don't think I've ever had this. I mean, I've never thought to have this conversation because it's about something I don't think about very much, but I use all the time. I mean, all the time. I'll, I'll use it tomorrow. I got a big one tomorrow. Bet you, Nickel, I use the same, the same mechanism that we're going to discuss. And plus, it's fun. I mean, it's Martha and I've worked together for many, many, many years. Um, and so we definitely have some chemistry. And it's fun to get back together and talk to somebody that you have chemistry with. And that's nice. And it's refreshing. And it makes a difference. So that's what you have to look forward to today. Um, that podcast is is quite remarkable. And moving along, great guns. As far as uh, the rest of the world's going, I don't know how you guys are doing. But it's, it's interesting to me that as I talk to people around the globe, because we get to talk to people around the globe a lot now in this new model. I'm surprised at where people are on this, this response to the pandemic. It's so different depending on where you are. And some of it has to do with social justice and equity and fairness and global finance. And those are all really wicked, wicked complex topics that we could spend hours talking about. I have opinions, you have opinions, maybe they align, maybe they don't. But some of it just seems to be how how countries really have capacity for managing like a global rollout, not, not a, maybe an, a countrywide rollout, which will eventually equate into a global roll, rollout. And that's been very uh, telling to me. It's also interesting in that we're starting to see 
more activity around accidents and failures. And certainly there are lots of things that are, are becoming more interesting. And it, it's a wonder to me, like, like the, the subway accident in Mexico city is on my mind. That's a recent one. And it's a wonder to me that these accidents are happening now, but they didn't seem to happen during that dip when people were kind of pulled out of society. And it makes sense, right? I mean, it's, there's no mystery here, but it's interesting. And you wonder if we're going to have to play some catch up with failure. I God, I hope not. But I do think it's a it's an important time for us in the world that thinks about reliability and resilience and, and new systems and human performance and all the things we think about because there really is increased attention because as we move forward into whatever this new horizon looks like it's going to be, and it's different for everybody. I mean, it's different depending on where you are on the globe. The need to keep the fires burning around capacity, I think is going to be more important because my guess is, is that people are going to want to pretend nothing ever happened and kind of move boldly on, from where they stopped. And this, this idea that they can move boldly on from where they stop, I get it. It's comfortable. It, it makes sense to me. I, I understand why that would exist. I just think it's not very possible. And it's kind of foolish to give up on the potential learning that we've all experienced collectively. And, and that collective learning, I think, really is learning around how systems survive a, a, a true stress test. I mean, and I guess this isn't even really a stress test. It's a stress and how systems survive where we, where we were good, where we had thriving and where we were not good, where we had brittleness and understanding and finding those things and thinking about those things and keeping that conversation alive is going to be important. Just like keeping the conversation around risk alive is vital. This same idea, keeping the conversation around brittleness uh, alive, I think is going to pay off in the long run for whatever uncertainty we encounter next. And I'm relatively convinced, even though I do not want to be convinced and I hate like crap saying this, I'm relatively convinced there will be more uncertainty. Is that preachy enough for you? Did I get too preachy? Keep the conversation around capacity alive. That would be kind of the point I would make. Uh, I was trying to make. I just took a really long time to make it. And kind of, sort of, that's what the topic of the podcast today encompasses. This discussion, I think, is a worthwhile discussion, but I'm not in charge of this discussion. I am the discuss e, not the discuss or. That Martha will take the lead. She's going to grab the steering wheel and drive this discussion because she had a clear agenda of a question she needed answered. She didn't tell me what it was, really. I mean, I had to discover it as we progressed through. But once we started and once I thought about it and, and talked about it a little bit, it seemed like there was kind of a lot of stuff to talk about. Again, we stand on the shoulders of the giants. No idea is new. Everything is stolen from someplace. This is kind of one of those. It's a conglomeration of lots of other good ideas that have all come together to become a, a, a narrative mechanism by which we can understand and talk about uh, learning, failure learning, learning from failure. That's a better way to say that. And that is, in fact, the conversation we're going to have. So with no further ado and with great joy, I'm going to pass the microphone over to Martha. She'll take it from here. Thanks for listening, you guys. It is so much fun. I think this is like the 700th episode. 
we've been doing this a long time. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's been a long time. And thank you for making this a reality and keep listening. I, I, I really appreciate um, the fact that you listen so much so that uh, I always take it as a privilege, which is why I, it's why I don't have advertising and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I used to have it for a while and they still want me to have it a lot. A lot of people want me to have advertising, but I don't think that's the right. It's, it's just us. It's just us talking. If advertising gets in, then we got other crap to talk about and we got plenty of crap to talk about without it. So let me shut up. Here's Martha and the podcast for today. Adios. Good luck. Have fun. Well, I am so happy to be hosting today the pre-accident investigation podcast. That is quite an honor that no one's ever had before. I'm not sure what to think. I'm so pleased. Well, I think it's because it's about time somebody, I don't think the listeners have heard of him, Todd Conklin, Conklin, do you think it's like pronounced French? It is, it's Conklin. Conklin. <laughs> Ooh, uh-huh, Conklin. It's exactly what it is. Exactly. You're reading my mind. Yep. So Todd Conklin is on the podcast today, and this is really important, Todd. We really need to have a better understanding of expanded event factors analysis. I, I've i been, you know, hanging out with some hop folks, and people are really thinking about this, and we, we really need to know where it comes from and the history and how can organizations use this? Well, that's a super good question. So first of all, before we start, mm-hmm. there's nothing new under the sun. Yes. And so really what we're looking at is kind of a classic event and causal factors analysis tool that existed kind of in the more linear safety one world or like more that which was an accident investigation protocol. There's a bunch of protocols that use this idea. But what we developed at Los Alamos, and I must nod my hat to the famous Roger Cruz, mm-hmm. the uh, curmudgeonly, <laughs> and I mean that in a loving way, uh, Mensa member who was the uh, biggest pusher-backer, if I can use that term, on human performance and then slowly became the biggest proponent of human performance I've ever met. And he was brilliant. And what's interesting is that we knew we had a problem. And the problem we were trying to solve, because that's probably where we should start the discussion, was that timelines are constructs that are created retrospectively that are completely made up in the investigation room and do not exist in real life. In Mm -hmm. fact, timelines are only made after the event happens. And so timelines have this really bad problem. And the problem they have is that they give a world full of chaos, a complex adaptive world order. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like the workers failed to identify what is really obvious, which is the negative outcome, And then they failed to stop before the negative outcome happened. Right. And we weaponize timelines in such a way that we use them against people and we tell them exactly where in the process they failed to do something. Yeah. And they're inherently biased because the factors that you're paying attention to are ones that help create that linear timeline that makes that accident make sense. Uh, instead of making the workers' uh, behavior make sense. Oh, that was beautiful. I mean, that's 
You're exactly right. And the likelihood of the failure happening for the workers doing the work is not even nearly as clear as the likelihood of the failure happening on the timeline that's created, constructed afterwards. In, in fact, I would say the likelihood of the failure happening is zero because had they thought the failure was going to happen, they clearly would have intervened at some point, done something different, and averted the failure that they actually now are having to deal with. And it's especially true because timelines get more elaborate based upon the event. And so it's especially true with catastrophic failure, fatalities. We draw these incredibly, I don't even know a word for it, these incredibly dangerous timelines, and then we hold those as fact. You know, mm-hmm. this is fact. There's, there's nothing on there that didn't actually happen. Well, yeah, that's true. You're absolutely right. But there's so much on there that you didn't put on that also actually happened. Right. That it's this biased approach. You're exactly right. And so that was the problem we were trying to solve. And what's interesting is we struggled with it, and we tried to not use timelines at all. So now you can have, like, Fram with Eric Hallnagel, or there's a bunch of different methods, but they're all really, really complicated. Mm -hmm. They're also complex, but they're (laughs) complicated. They're hard to do. And they have lots of wiggly lines, and you build all these relationship pyramids, and, and they move from one weird thing to another weird thing. And they're just, it's almost an art to know how to do them. And so that's not going to work with me because you've known me a long time. Yes. Um, I'm nothing if I'm not lazy. Or maybe a better word is I'm nothing if I'm not efficient. Right. And I needed something to really help us actually code the event. And when I say code the event, you'll understand this. I'm using the sociological term code. Yes. Like coding the event, like creating a schema that somehow allows us to put that in some kind of format that other people can look at and decipher that code. Mm -hmm. And code comes from narrative analysis. Exactly. And that's, I think, really important here because ultimately when you're doing an investigation, you're creating a narrative. I absolutely 100% agree. And I had a really nice background in narrative analysis, uh, especially on my master's degree. No, was that... Uh, no, that must have been in my PhD program. I did a narrative analysis of the Unabomber Manifesto. Right. And I used uh, used a, a computer software called CatPat, which does word co-usage and tri-usage. Mm-hmm. And it, it helped me understand a nonlinear way to look at narrative that would allow you to code the information so you could use it again later to do analysis. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the problem we have. And you also used it, uh, Todd, uh, your Unabomber experience to be able to discern whether or not I should date someone based on their <laughs> emails to me. So it, I can say that I've benefited from that knowledge. Well, you, it's really funny because you came up with, I mean, they clearly feel they've been unjustly treated. There's clearly some outside force acting upon them. I've forgotten this research. Yeah, I forgot we did that. That's very funny. <laughs> well, so, so that, that led us to, um, a, a, a need, right? And, mm-hmm. and I mean, it's all about a need. I mean, that's it's it's all about finding some need and then analyzing that need to determine what happens. So we started saying, well, we're not going to get away without submitting a timeline. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, we're going to have to have a timeline. And between you and I, and I'm totally curious what you're going to say next when I say this, so I'll shut up. The human brain really wants a timeline. Oh, yeah. Your mind creates it whether you want it I think it's a good idea or not. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. We think in narratives. Yeah. 
So it's it's not a matter of making the narrative more complicated. That's not going to help anything, whether it's a Russian novel or a short story. We're still going to go there. And complexity isn't the same thing as something being complicated. Right. And many times a simpler narrative is going to help us understand complex relationships more than just adding a bunch of fish scales and yeah. things. And wiggly lines. And, and wiggly lines. And yeah. Im- implied relationships and mm-hmm. and actual relationships and implied causality and actual causality and subsection causality. And yeah. well, what's the word they use all the time? It's it's not causal, but it's it's got a causal effect. I mean, these are all just kind yeah. of made up terms for somehow taking a narrative and making it into an engineering document. And it, right. just, it doesn't work very well. And, I, and one of the, I think one of the key things that, that is beneficial is that we can have multiple competing narratives. And it's in that competition. It's in the contrast between those narratives where we get a lot of insight. We can't eliminate narrative from the human experience. But we can um, make that narrative more robust yeah. more disruptive absolutely and that and actually that's a really great point because it's the space between the i'm putting air quotes up facts yeah it's it's a space between the action blocks that exist in a timeline that actually tell the story of context and the story of complexity and the story of adaption and the story of the emergent nature of the problem that is about to happen or the solution they're about to create so that's where we were and so I started monkeying around with it. And, and again, Roger was pushing back pretty hard. This is stupid. Mm-hmm. This is crazy. You know, this is wrong. He's an engineer, so I would expect that. Right. And I started thinking, well, you know, if you do a timeline in the middle of a page on a report you submit for an investigation, there's a lot of space above the timeline <laughs> that goes unused. And there's a lot of space below the timeline. But let's talk about below later. So I started saying, well, you, every, every block in a timeline is an action. I mean, and generally that's true. There, something happened. There's an action. There's there's something that took place. It has to be observable. Right, right. Observable. Like, the, what's the old, they would teach us when we learned how to do adult training? If they hold a gun to your head and you can do it, it's an action. That old thing, right? <laughs> right. Right? And so I thought, well, every action lives in its own context. So instead of using the line horizontally, like a timeline moves, you know, with this implied temporal relationship, and the belief that the worker should have the knowledge before it happened, what we can do is use it vertically. Mm-hmm. And so every action then would have context. So every action, there would be a, a, a local rationale. There'd be a reasonable narrative for why that action became apparent. So like if, if block one says worker failed to use proper ladder, which is a horrible finding, but that's one you'd see all the time. Yeah. Then above it, kind of in a stack going upwards you can you can put little blocks that say proper ladder was not available at that moment um fred has the key and he was on vacation uh Mm -hmm. the other ladder broke and they didn't replace it mostly we have four foot ladders because they don't trigger fall protection training and all of a sudden above that first action block you could have 15 or 20 condition statements that actually make that action block have context mm-hmm. in situation, in the narrative, within the narrative. Right. And what's amazing is, is that you can do that for every single block on the timeline. Mm-hmm. 
And that I always use post-it notes because it's easy and you can change them and you will change them a million times. Right. In fact, you'll even change the timeline a million times. But once you get the action line lined out, then you can put those timelines above it. Bing, bang, bing, bang, boom. And suddenly you start to have this really context rich understanding of the action. Mm-hmm. And you can do that for every single block. And now you'll have a bunch of data coded in the narrative in a linear format that regulators can understand and kind of like. And the most amazing thing between you and I is in the bottom corner of each one of those post-it notes, you can also refer to the document or the evidence file that you have to actually prove that the ladder was not available, right? We went out and looked or whatever. And so now all of a sudden you're not only coding the narrative, but you've created a way to sort information so that you can directly tie that information back to that little post-it note in the context section of action one and make sense out of it. And we started doing that, Martha, and it was it was kind of miraculous. I mean, it was crazy because now the investigation, would they would move really fast because we had places to put all this information that normally we would say, well, that doesn't go on the timeline. That yeah. doesn't go on that timeline. Right. And so you can really make it very... Um, yeah, a very rich, it sort of reminds me, I like that it's coming up from the bottom. It uh-huh. reminds me of the ladder of meaning. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of, it is kind of like that, right? The ladder of abstraction or the ladder of meaning. And, and you can monkey with them. You can move them around. You can put the ones that are more important closer, the ones that are less important far away. Um, they fit in a bunch of places. But so then we started doing that and it worked beautifully. Just beautiful. I mean, it's really, it's so simple too. I mean, you guys... You know how to do this. You don't need approval. You don't need training. Just do it. I mean, just put the context above. You can't do it wrong. I mean, Mm -hmm. and if you do it wrong, move it, right? Right. And you're starting with what people already naturally do is create that timeline, but then you just keep making it richer. Right. And that's exactly right. And you you base it upon the information you gather from the people you've talked to, and they're going to tell you all sorts of stuff. But now, now you have a really interesting opportunity. Because you've used the timeline, that's the space across the center of the sheet of paper. You're using the space above the timeline. That's for all the conditions, the context part. We started to put worker mindset below each one of those actions. Mm. And so ladder not, employee used the wrong ladder, ladder not available, Sam's got the key and he's on vacation. Now, the first post-it note underneath the ladder not available says, Sam had some ownership issues with the ladder and hoarded the key and has for years, right? I mean, you Mm -hmm. can start putting in stuff that may never fit in your investigation. It may never find its way to your final report. Right. But it's very important to the context of the event, and it is extremely important to the narrative. Yeah. And so now what's crazy is that the timeline doesn't move, bink, 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 you know, horizontally like a timeline. It starts to move like the layer of an onion. Right. And action one, the first block on the timeline, has context, the actual observable action, and worker mindset. And that tells chapter one of the story you're trying to tell, the narrative. Right. Then chapter two is the next block. Chapter three is the next block. Chapter four is the next block. And eventually, all of them add up to the story of the event, the complete narrative. Right. And what's amazing about it is that the first time we submitted it, we were a little scared. I mean, in fact, mm-hmm. I remember we submitted it, but we also had an alternative one without it in. And we gave it to management and said, here's two versions of the same report. 
which one do you find more usable and more effective? Because remember, we're from the world that says investigations learn, corrective actions fix. Right. So investigations shouldn't generate corrective actions. What investigations should generate is a judgment of need. Mm-hmm. And then the operations owners should look at the need and they should generate the corrective actions based upon the need identified from the investigation. Yeah. So we submitted this fancy pants timeline and management loved it. They wanted mm-hmm. to hug and kiss it. And it became almost instantly the standard by which all investigations were done. So much so that other major organizations that have initials mm-hmm. came and observed what we were doing and took it with them. Yeah. In fact, Ivan uh, Popoliti with the Forest Service took it and he actually took it one step further and really did a bunch of cool stuff with it. But we started using this method because it's easy. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly um, information rich and it supports the narrative and it makes the timeline, it moves it from being a stupid negative experience that inaccurately simplifies the event to an information-rich narrative tool that allows you to code lots of different information and the regulators like it a yeah. lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. I love it. I think it's fantastic. And actually, you know, the way that I'm thinking about it is you have that timeline and maybe you know, even to decouple from that way of thinking, just make that timeline the observable actions, right? Yeah. And then above the line, what you're talking about is operational capacity. Absolutely. All of the things that are around the structure of the organization, what's available, what's not available, all of those things. And the stuff below the timeline is really psychological capacity. Yeah, that's right. That worker mindset is the narrative that comes there in the worker mindset is, the emotions that people have and the stories, yeah. the uh, the thoughts that they have around those emotions. And those are really important to leadership when you think about turning this over for someone to, to figure out how to intervene. The emotional aspect of it is also really important because that leader has to know what 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 narratives, what stories am I leading from towards driving people towards this common purpose? And what organizational capacity, what resources am I leading from to drive them towards a shared purpose? Holy cow, that's brilliant. I even think that's that's even a better way to frame that. And that's what's cool about this little, I don't know what you call it. It's not a method, really. Um Cheater tool. I don't know yeah. what you call. I don't know what you, co- <laughs> well, what, you know what I'd really call it mm. is a coding mechanism. Yeah, it's a narrative coding mechanism. That's C O D I N G. I'm always worried about that first. But <laughs> what's cool about it is you could take it exactly. I, I really actually like your approach. Um, that's actually really brilliant. That you have the operational narrative above and the psychological narrative below. I think that's brilliant. And really try and focus on observable actions in the middle. Yeah. because Just as a way of trying to, you know, recognize bias, strip the bias out as much as possible, but give bias. I mean, you know, bias is just interpretation, right? So we have to create room for it, but we have to create room for it in a way that we recognize it for what it is. See, and I don't think you'll get any argument at all on that. I think everybody will say, yeah, that's a smart idea. The timeline should only be observable actions. Because then that meets the sort of just the facts, ma'am, test, mm-hmm. even though it's 
still biased and, and gives it order. And I mean, there's yeah. there's a ton of downside to the timeline. But, but what we're trying to do is make it a traditional tool that we would probably build, even in spite of not wanting to build it, yeah. more meaningful and more effective in really allowing the organization to learn. Because that's the goal, right? Investigations right. learn. And then once you learn, then operations can take that learning and create corrective actions. Mm -hmm. And that is brilliant. It's funny. When you ask for us to do this, I, I, uh, I, I would not have thought to do this. I'm really, <laughs> I mean, because I well, never, it, I never it wasn't me. Was it was Andy Baker. We had, we had our, the Tuesdays at two meeting today and everybody was really curious about this. And so I got the action to go and interview you. And because we took a big fat bike ride, that's, mm -hmm. that's where we're coming from is a big fat bike ride. We decided at the end, we, we would just do a really quick little pod for it yeah. because then that'll, that'll, uh, it's easy to distribute and I'll give you a copy of this too, if you want it. But, um, that's a, actually, it's a really good question. It's such a great tool. And I never thought about it as being, so I never published on it. I never mm -hmm. even thought to publish on it because I never thought of it as being anything other than just a way to code information. Right. It's it's not even really a research method. It's just a coding mechanism. I mean, that's, yeah. that's all it does. And it makes the narrative richer. And, and, and again, we did it to combat the short-sightedness of the timeline. We wanted to use the timeline as effectively as we could. And so we just manipulated to have meaning for us. And it's been, man, I've used it. Well, I'm going to use it tomorrow. I'm on an investigation tomorrow. And I'll, I'll make one tomorrow. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's no point in fighting something that's so natural for people. You might as well figure out how to use it for good rather than evil. And I think this is a great way, a great way to do that. Well, okay, let's do your timeline. Let's start with that. Yeah. And now let's, let's make it richer. And you're right. If the group doesn't start with a timeline, they don't know how to start. Exactly. And I'm not sure I would know how to start. I mean, you have to somehow sort the information out and try to retrospectively make sense out of what happened. Mm -hmm. And then once you get that, that action-based timeline, observable actions, that's really key because no one can argue with that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's bulletproof almost. Once you get that observable action, then you can use the space above and the space below to actually very clearly just show relationships. And the cool thing is that a lot of those context factors above and the worker mindset or the, the operational context and the psychological context, I like that better, they're going to repeat on several different action blocks. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. There's a great amount of fear of reporting. That could be at almost every block. Yeah. I mean, and that's fine because that is a thread that runs all the way through. And then when you're in your analysis phase, you're like, you know, this, this shows up a lot. Mm -hmm. This is probably a need. Mm -hmm. And it's not a need that's going to show up in the timeline, but it's definitely going to be a judgment of need as a part of the path forward for the investigation. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you, Todd. Um, thank you. I think this is going to be really helpful to the HOP community. And um, thank you for letting me uh, be the host of the pre-accident investigations for once. This is a long time. I mean, I've had this dream, Todd, since I was <laughs> a seven-year-old girl. Well, I'm glad that your dream finally came to fruition. Yes. It's, it's a big day. Thank you, Martha. You're the best. <laughs> Bye, Todd. Bye. So that's the podcast. What do you think, huh? It was an interesting conversation. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I'm assuming you did. I'm, I'm taking a bold step forward there. But I hope you did because it was fun. That is what we wanted to talk about today. So until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. 
be kind to each other, check in on one another, and for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <laughs>